Hello and welcome to the Dr. Scree Show. I'm Dr. Scree and this is my show. This week, wow, uh, what a show have we got for you. We've got Kevin Hearn from the Bare Naked Ladies on the show. Uh, I, I can't believe that uh, we've managed to attract a guest of his caliber. And what a lovely and humble man. Uh, he was almost almost British in his humbleness uh, and uh, not unwillingness, but uh, like, uh, how do I put it nice, mild discomfort at taking a compliment, uh, which I feel very much as a British man. We're not trained for that sort of thing. And I think he's very much the same way. But he's a man who's achieved so much. Like, as well as his uh, wonderful work with the Bare Naked Ladies, his solo albums are amazing. He worked uh, for 10 years at the end of Lou Reed's life as his band leader. Uh, and the guy just, just always seems to be about uh, not only creating stuff, but also seeing things from a positive viewpoint, from the viewpoint of uh, being a good person, just I can't put it uh, better or more simply than that. And we just had a wonderful conversation. Uh, I'd like to thank very much his uh, manager, Zach, uh, the Ben Aker ladies manager, who uh, put us in touch and helped sort this out. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've been really looking forward to sharing this, the audio version of this one with you. If you want to check out the video, please go to the Dr. Squeeze Show Facebook page. You can either just look up the page on uh, Facebook, The Dr. Squeeze Show, or you can go to fb.me slash The Dr. Squeeze Show. And uh, please check out our other videos. Almost all of our podcasts are there in video form. There's a couple which are audio only. And you can check those all out at drsquee.com. Nice and easy one to remember. Uh, please follow us also on social media. So we're on uh, Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Squee. And please just, just keep supporting the show. Thank you everyone who watched this uh, live. Thank you everyone who's listening now. And just thank you all out there. I hope you're all looking after yourselves and each other and that you're doing okay during this craziest time of lockdown, which we're still in. Uh, it's uh, If anything, gets more confusing as some things get uh, rolled back and some things like get opened up. And uh, here in the UK, we're going through a bit of a crazy time. We're kind of playing whack-a-mole with the virus. So certain areas have had bad infection rates, so we've had to sort of like curb back a few kind of freedoms we got back in certain areas of the country. And uh, other freedoms we were due to get back have had to wait for everyone's safety. And, you know, whereas I respect everyone has a different viewpoint, I, I think, you know, it's the right thing to do. Like, you know, if a few extra freedoms, which, yes, fine, they are right. But if that keeps everyone alive, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe we just kind of give up a few of our usual freedoms for everyone's health and safety. So uh, that having been said, I don't mean to get political. Just, you know, just want to make sure everyone's okay. Everyone's having a good time out there. But I'm not going to go long on this intro because I know you are here to hear Kev Hearn from the Bare Naked Ladies. Oh, God. I start doing this in the interview, by the way, just very quickly. Near the end of it, I start calling him Kev because we were just having such a wonderful time talking. I hope that wasn't over familiar. Uh, it wasn't meant to be. I didn't do that on purpose. It just kind of came out. Uh, and I did just want to actually, yeah, just one last thing before we go into the interview. I want to give a shout out to my son. Now, as well as being a Bare Naked Ladies fan of many years myself, I got my son into uh, their music. And it was his first gig, which I took him to see, was the Bare Naked Ladies right here in Southampton. And that was just um, a wonderful thing to be able to do. Not only 
was he so excited but it's so exciting to me to share a band which means so much to me with him uh, so uh, th that's another reason why this was one was kind of special to me so anyway without further ado here is Kevin Hearn from the Bare Naked Ladies talking to me for the Dr. Squee show enjoy welcome to the show with your friend and mine so tell me Dr. Squee who's it gonna be this time we like to hear you talk and we love to hear you listen and if you are not subscribed you won't know what you're missing so welcome Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Tonight, Squee welcomes... Kevin Hearn. And now here's the man himself, Dr. Squee. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Uh, we're going live just a few minutes early, so uh, if you miss any of this, you can watch it back later on the video on the Dr. Squee Show page. And this will be available on audio at drsquee.com later. So please do check us out there and all the videos with our guests. And if you're listening to this, you might be or watching this, you might be a music fan. And we've had an interview in the past with Jill Sabule. Uh, but please check out our back catalogue. Now, tonight, I've got a very special guest. My guest tonight is the keyboard player, songwriter and sometimes singer and accordion player in the Bare Naked Ladies. He's also had eight solo albums the latest being Common Sense, all of which are available to stream or buy now. He's worked with Lou Reed, Tom Jones, The Persuasions, to name just a few. All this, and he's had number one hits. Sing, sing, he's sung with a spaceman and entered the Canadian Hall of Fame. Please welcome to the show, Kevin Hearn. How are you doing tonight, Kevin? Hi, Dr. Squee. I'm doing okay. And you were saying that you weren't sure if you had enough to talk about for an hour, like just just those things alone. And that's just half of it. <laughs> well, I'm not the most uh, chatty fellow usually, but uh, I, I thank you for inviting me on your show. Most oh, people say, me. you're in the Bare Naked Ladies. And I say, yeah, I'm kind of the quiet guy that doesn't talk a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I think you may be too busy to talk with like uh, looking through the credits of everything you've done. I don't know how you squeeze it all into a day, sir. Yeah, I keep pretty busy. <laughs> how, do I, how do I address you, Doctor Squee, or just oh Squee, uh, just Squee? Okay, yeah, it's it's an old nickname, um, yeah, for very silly reasons. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I started using it on the podcast because uh, uh, when I first started podcasting uh, with my previous show, I was working as a counselor, so it was just a way of keeping my name off what I was doing, uh, so I couldn't be googled by any clients, and it just kind of stuck. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, so to talk about you, though, so how are you doing with with all this lockdown business? Uh, it's been challenging, but I I'm fortunate that uh, our band has done well, and I, I I've been able to remain comfortable, and I'm I'm really grateful for that. Uh, obviously, our industry has just more or less been shut down as far as the live performances. So that's been really uh, a change in my life. I'm so used to that that energy. Uh, the hustle and bustle, the traveling. And uh, on one hand, I, I really miss it. And on the other hand, it's given me a chance to really 
sort of be calm and get into a routine and try and learn some things I've been wanting to for a long time and uh, spend more time with my daughter. Excellent. And yeah, how is uh, it, it? Is it weird for someone who travels so much to just be still for so long? And to just, I mean, obviously, you sound like you're a very involved um, family man from everything, everything I've read. Yeah, uh, I find it strange not to be uh, jumping on a plane or on a tour bus. Uh, and I've never spent this amount of time consecutively with my daughter without having to leave. So that's been really a silver lining. It's really been precious time. That sounds wonderful. And, um, and also in in January and February, we, uh, well, Bare Naked Ladies got together and started recording a new record. And we took a small break uh, beginning of March. And then, you know, all this happened in Canada anyways. And uh, so now I've been putting finishing touches on the record as we start to go into mixing mode. And that's been nice too, to have a creative outlet and sort of a creative routine. And is there anything you can tell us about the album at this stage? I think it's really good. There's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of really good, strong songs. We, uh, we're working with a new producer. Well, we, we wanted to sort of capture the band more of a live performance, you know, more organic. So we went to Ed's Cottage and recorded, um, I think, 14 songs. And then um, when we picked up again after the break, we actually went into a recording studio and we're, I'm sort of adding things to the songs. And so it's a mix. There's a few songs that are quite stripped back and organic and, and some songs have the bells and whistles on, on it, you know. Oh, excellent. I, I mean, it's, it seems that... Um you as a band are very capable of doing both. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to do both and sort of keep that balance. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I, I want to basically do a bit of a whistle stop tour of your career, sir, if I might. Okay. Okay. So if we can take it back, you were born in Grimsby, uh, Ontario, which uh, I was actually quite pleased to hear because when I saw an album, one of your tracks, Grimsby, I was wondering why you were writing about quite a miserable town in the UK. But uh, <laughs> and uh, Is there a town called Grimsby in the UK? I would imagine it's probably where your Grimsby is named from because usually Canadian name places and American, which right. uh, share a name with the UK, usually based on our, our places. Uh, I, I hope your Grimsby was a little less grim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, born there in 1969. I I wasn't there long, but uh, that's where I was born. I was going to call the song Going Back to Grimsby, but uh, I just shortened it to Grimsby. Well, uh, by the way, any UK Grimsonians who are listening, I do apologize, of course. I'm only joking. Boy, you don't want to <laughs> offend the Grimsonians. <laughs> no, we don't indeed. <laughs> that, you don't want to offend Northerners in the UK is what I've discovered. <laughs> I'll take the um, word so uh, you learned piano um, when you were young and you started your record co collection off. Can you tell us about kind of uh, getting into music and maybe some of your earlier music collection? Uh, there were six kids in my family. Um, 
and everyone was into their own music. There's a lot of music in the house. I remember uh, my sister Mary Pat had Bay City Rollers posters all over her um, room. Uh, my brother Chris, he loved the group Kiss, and him and his friends would put on all the makeup, and they'd they'd sort of do air guitar rock concerts, lip syncing to Kiss, playing on tennis rackets and hockey sticks. And I found that all very fascinating. Uh, my mom, she loved Andy Williams. And I remember just, I would latch on to certain songs like Born Free by Andy Williams, uh, Theme from Mahogany by Diana Ross, The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel and the big ones for me were, of course, the Beach Boys, songs like God Only Knows, and the Beatles. Uh, my brother had the Beatles blue record, and I just fell in love with it. Um, obviously, songs for a young kid, I think I was about five, like Octopus's Garden, Magical Mystery Tour. They just drew me in, and I was like, what is this magical thing? What is this magical place? I want to go there. I want to live there. And uh, I asked my mother to buy me a record. And uh, my first record was a Magical Mystery Tour. How oh, wonderful. I think there's something really uh, great about growing up with older siblings where you can just go through their record collection and sort of then branch off from there into your own music. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there's a quite a connection in my life to um, my musical hero, Lou Reed, and my older sister, Mary Pat, and her record collection. But we can get there later if you want. Sure, wherever you want to go, sir. <laughs> well, when I was when I was uh, nine or ten, I was I was across the street playing on the front lawn with my friend Billy, and he had a radio. And "Walk on the Wild Side" came on the radio, uh, Lou Reed song, and just knocked my socks off. I'd never heard anything like it. Of course, I went to my sister. I said, "Have you ever heard of this guy, Lou Reed?" And she had the Transformer record, and um, she was she was the cool one. She had the Lou Reed record, and so had she not had it, I don't know. Would I've you know forgotten about it? But I, I you know, I still have her copy of the record in my collection. <laughs> <laughs> I just there's something just uh, so wonderful about Lou Reed. He's one of those artists who, when you first hear them especially when you're young and like you, you get there's something slightly naughty about it as well as being kind of so fantastic as music that, that it's just great to, to discover when you're younger. Yeah. Are you a Lou Reed fan? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I've got the uh, deepest bench knowledge, but yeah, I, I love his stuff. Yeah. Well, that record was, uh, had quite a sound. It was produced by uh, David Bowie and Mick Ronson and, it has some of his classics on it, like Walk on the Wild Side, Satellite of Love, Perfect Day. It's quite a quite a good starting point if for anyone out there who wants to check them out. Now, David Bowie. David Bowie and Queen are sort of like my, uh, some of my favorites. Ah, so you must like Under Pressure. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, bizarrely enough, my guinea pigs are named Bowie and Mercury. It's not a coincidence. That's cool. <laughs> Uh, so uh, in 1988, uh, you joined Look People. Uh, was that your first band? Uh, I had a band in high school called the Glacials, and we 
me and my friends, basically, we didn't go out on the weekends. We would go to my friends, Anthony and Richard Brown's house. We'd go in their basement. They had a four track and they had a whole bunch of cool old synthesizers and we would make strange music to cassette. Um, and that, that was, you know, I always loved being in bands. That was my first band where I thought we were doing something really interesting. And, uh, that sort of led me into this group called the look people who I joined when I was in my last year of high school and they were all older than me. They were, you know, 10 years older than me, but they knew I could play and they needed a keyboardist. And the music was the arrangements. It was like Frank Zappa with lyrics by Dr. Seuss, you know, uh, really intense arrangements. We rehearsed all the time. And there'd be stupid things like in this verse, we're going to do this shot two times. And then in the next verse, we're going to do it seven times. And it, you know, it just didn't make any sense, but that's the kind of, we had songs like uh lovely Samba chicken, men who chop trees, uh trucker, butt. <laughs> it was, it was pretty fun. You see, as as um, experimental as that sounds and a bit weird and out there, it sounds like great preparation for the Bare Naked Ladies, to be honest with you. It was, yeah. We had quite a <laughs> reputation in Toronto. Uh, our, our live shows were pretty unhinged and and verged on performance art. You know, our our guitarist was six foot seven, I believe, Longo High. Our drummer, great Bob Scott, who I still play with in Finbuckle, uh, was quite, uh, he was like the Tasmanian devil on drums. And we would dress up and it was a lot of fun. And so people in the Toronto music community, including the guys from the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, were aware of the band and, and knew me from that band. Yeah, and uh, it was it was Tyler who originally brought you into the Bare Naked Ladies, I believe. And uh, did you know him just from him coming to the shows? Or? Uh, back then, um, I would run into Tyler at, at live shows. There's so much live music in Toronto, or there was back then. And uh, I knew Tyler enough to say hi and how you doing. And uh, there's a, a iconic bar in Toronto at Spadina and Queen called the Horseshoe Tavern. And I forget who I was there to see, but I ran into Tyler and he said, Kevin, it's interesting that I ran into you because we were talking about you today. And at this point, you know, Tyler's band, the Bare Naked Ladies, was like the biggest thing in Canada. You know, they were just exploding. And so I was like, oh, why? Why were you talking about me? And he said, well, Jim's brother, Andy, who was the keyboardist, um, is leaving the band. And your name came up as uh, a good possible replacement. So we're hoping you would do a two-month tour with us to see how it goes, you know. And right. I think there's sort of a legendary guy in the Toronto music scene who passed away um, last year. His name was Dave Bookman. And I learned – and years later that he was the fellow who suggested to Tyler that they asked me. So thank you, Dave. Um, so 
I didn't hear from Tyler for months after that. That was it. So I was like, okay, that was interesting. <laughs> and then I got a phone call and like, yeah, we're leaving in two weeks. Are you ready to go? And that was that. They, I went to meet them at the uh, recording studio in Toronto. And I'm trying to remember the name of the studio, but I'm having a mind blank. But they were putting finishing touches on their um, – born on a pirate ship record. Yeah. And they said, we didn't want to go through a whole audition process with different people. We're really hoping that you would do it, which, you know, how nice is that? So, yeah. uh, I said, I said, yes. And at the time I was still kind of working day jobs, making ends meet and trying to, um, make my way into the music industry. You know, I, I, I'd been playing with good bands and I was doing a soundtrack uh, gig at the time. So I was doing, I was doing all right, but this was like the first time I could sort of not worry about doing a day job and, and do music full time. So it was a very, very exciting um, break for me. And I'm, I'm ever grateful to the guys for that. Yeah. And it seems like one thing which you did on the, the, that, uh that those early days when you just joined so they were putting finishing touches to born and pirate ship and you appeared in videos for music you hadn't played on i I always find that um must be such a weird experience for people it was it was strange um i don't remember if we really talked about it that it was strange they needed to make videos for those songs i think it was uh the old apartment and uh, shoebox. Yeah. And I think they were just so we were just, we just connected and it just felt right. And I think they really wanted to embrace me as a member of the band and sort of not make me feel discluded. And so, yeah, I was just on board for, for those things. And I think the old apartment video was really cool. It was on a rooftop and Jason Priestley directed it. And uh, I'd been playing that song in the live show on electric guitar. And so I think they just felt like, yeah, he's, he's playing this tune with us. We're doing a video for it. He may as well be in the video. And for you, how was it? Like, I mean, it's always probably, I would imagine intimidating to enter into any band, but especially one which was so established had, kind of quite a few hits already uh how how were those early days kind of getting to know the band i remember they were rehearsing sort of in the suburbs of toronto and i remember they were very nice to me the sound was great there was a crew that was really professional and it was so cool to to play and have it sound great you know we weren't in some dingy rehearsal space by the hour and I was most worried about uh, Jim because I was replacing his brother, you know, Andy. But Jim was the nicest to me. And, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. They were all nice to me. But Jim was very nice and gracious and made me feel really comfortable. And, you know, our sense of humor, our sense of humor is all just clicked. That's lovely. And uh, you went, uh, so you went straight on tour. Uh, and uh, is it true that you learned all their back catalogue in a matter of weeks? 
Yeah. Well, as I said, Tyler said, you know, we're going on tour. We're leaving in like two weeks. And I didn't have any of the records. I'd seen them live once. Um, and again, my sister had their record. She had a cassette of Gordon. And <laughs> so your sister's music collection helping you still. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I think I got together with Ed once. Uh, just to sort of run through stuff. And then we did rehearsals proper. And then after the rehearsals, I went to break down my gear. And uh, our sound man, Robin, said, Kevin, what are you doing? I said, I'm packing up. He goes, no, you don't You don't pack up your gear anymore. We we do that. Who <laughs> does? I was like, oh, okay. So was, that's how new that environment was for me. I, I'd been... I've been, what do you say, slugging it out or slogging it out? Does that make sense? Yeah, in, yeah. I'm in bands, independent bands, and lugging all my gear around to clubs and packing up and, um, you know, so there was kind of a new world for me, a new, a new level. Yeah, it must have been amazing. And uh, just to go straight out on top, I mean, did you, with – as such a steep learning curve on all the songs. Did you just feel com confident with them? Are you someone who kind of like can learn songs very quickly like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable as a musician and, and the songs, I didn't find them difficult. No, um, I really enjoyed it and I was excited. I think other than the look people, I'd also worked with a group called Corky and the Juice Pigs and they they play a big part in the story of the Bare Naked Ladies because the Juice Pigs invited Steve and Ed to open for them on their Canadian tour when Steve and Ed were just a duo. And the Juice Pig members improvise an awful lot in their show. It's uh they're a musical comedy group. And Ed and Steve really adopted that uh format in their live performance. And I grew up uh, with my cousin Harland Williams, who's a com comedian. Yeah. And so, and the look people had comedic elements too, of course. So I feel I tuned into that part of the, the Bare Naked Ladies too. And when they went off on a tangent improvising, I could, I could zig and zag with them, or I could even take the lead with the music and, and uh, get a song going if, if they started talking about something funny. Well, yeah, I would have thought um, Harland Williams wouldn't be a bad one to teach you an anarchic sense of humour. <laughs> yeah, I've learned a lot from Harland. And uh, just, just in the midst of all this, or just after you recorded uh, your first solo album, Mothball Mint? Mothball Mint, yeah. Uh, how was it going into the studio with, with just your own work and uh, after such a, uh, an intense experience with a band? Uh, I'd always wanted to do it. Uh, Jim Cregan encouraged me to do it, and uh, he actually plays on it as well. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing other, other than I knew I wanted to try it, and um, it was so much fun. Uh, it's interesting listening back to it now. Some of it I go, oh, boy, I can't believe I <laughs> released this. But there's some other stuff where I'm like, wow, that's you know, that's really interesting and fun. I remember Steve Page's father listened to it and he said, I really like your record, Kevin, but I think it's one of the most unreasonable records I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I 
It's a lovely, yeah, lovely way of describing it. Yeah, unreasonable. Uh, so mothball mint, yeah, and Harland uh, Harlan did the photos for the the cover. He he was a mentor to me as well and encouraged me to do it. So I guess that's the only way you can really learn is by doing, you know. And so working in the band gave me the opportunity to afford to be able to do that in a studio with good musicians and Michael Phillip, uh, Wayaboda producing. And, you know, something Harlan taught me was put – put what you earn back into the machine, you know, back into the creative machine, invest in, in yourself that way and grow and learn and keep expanding your, your um, ability to do your craft. There certainly seems to be with your albums. I actually listened to them all back in preparation for this. And, and some which I really noticed was that each album has a, a kind of feel to it. Like it, it's all part of a piece. Is that something you purposefully do? Uh, I think they're all a, a snapshot in time and I kind of see them as uh, little paintings, you know, that, that should hang together. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very, very nice kind of feel to them all, but they all feel like something different. I think a snapshot in time is probably the, the answer to that. But um, after you've toured with uh, Rock Spectacle, you then went into the studio to record Stunt. Uh, now, that I think is kind of kind of uh, it's hard to argue that that isn't one of Bare Naked Ladies' most successful albums. It kind of uh, broke a lot of records the other ones hadn't. Uh, did it feel special when you were going into the studio with that one? Well, it did in the sense that it for me personally it was the first um, studio recording with the band, so I was excited to do that. Um, there was a lot of momentum. At that point, a lot of excitement about the band and a lot of excitement for that record. We had a lot of support from our, our record company at the time and a lot of support from radio at the time. And so it was, you know, opportunity was knocking. <laughs> we'd, <laughs> we'd spent so much time building our audience down in the USA and it, it really had paid off. And so now it was just a, a matter of making a great record going that next step. I mean, I love the craziness of some of the earlier albums, but it, it felt like uh, almost everything the band had learned to date uh, with a kind of uh, new kind of like edge to it somehow. I, I don't know how to describe it else, but uh, that was the first album which got me into the Bare Naked Ladies. That's cool. Well, I think, I think of one week, and how that song, more than any song before, captured what the band was like live. Um, yeah. You know, because we do go into these improv songs where Ed especially does freestyle raps, rapping sort of singing. Right. And that's how he wrote One Week. It was uh, kind of the first time we crossed that into our studio record. And as soon as I heard that song, I was, uh, I was like, wow, that is a special that could be a hit that song and it was also exciting because we were working with cool producers like susan rogers and david leonard and we were working down in te uh, texas yeah in a studio that belonged to willie nelson and there was a back room where they had a pool table and all these old master tapes of records that had been recorded there and they had so you could see like talking heads 
Stevie Ray Vaughan, Willie Nelson. So there's a lot of uh, energy in the in the space. But on the other hand, there's one week, which is the first song, and then there's When You Dream, which is the last song, which is a, a lullaby that Steve wrote for his um, recently born son, Isaac. And it's just a beautiful song. And um, whereas on past records, the band was very um, organic and acoustic, I, I think I wanted to bring to the table some more electronics and experimental ideas so we're getting these uh, little music boxes and sampling them and creating kind of a dreamscape for that song. And so I think as a band, we were trying new things and still pushing the sound a little further than it had been on all of the previous records, which was uh, really exciting. Yeah, I forget the exact quote, but I was reading that Tyler said that um, you changed the band's sound forever and it still resonates to this day. That's very nice. Yeah, I, I thought you wouldn't have anything for a compliment. I, I get the feeling you don't like compliments too much. No, they make me a little, unco- you know, it's very nice. I, I, that's very nice of him to say. And, uh, you know, I I did bring those elements to the band that, that they weren't really using before. So I, th- I think that's kind of what makes that record special in a way is in the context of me being a member. It's like the first sort of artistic statement yeah um i actually um caught you live to uh, the bennick ladies live twice uh, here in southampton it just uh, made me think of the rap which uh ed did ed does at the beginning of the shows where he incorporates the town and everything that he's seen it, it's amazing when he does those he's uh, very talented at that it's quite yeah. quite uh quite a thing <laughs> quite a card to play do you remember like the like like let's take them um, my town here Southampton for example do, do you remember places you go to like do you remember a lot about Southampton for instance or does it kind of blur just just traveling around the world it's a little bit of a blur I know when we we tour in uh, my memory is you know not the best for places I know when I go there I'll go oh yeah this place and I'll have my route that I do every time and I'll uh and I know, I know Boothby and I walked around there. So, our oh, Boothby Graffo, who um, supports you when you're touring the UK, is he what? I did Boothby Graffo. I'm oh, sorry, I was, I was editorialising a little bit. Boothby okay. Graffo, who who um, tours with you across the UK for anyone yeah. watching who's not familiar. He's an old friend of mine. Before I played with the Bare Naked Ladies, I did uh, one year at the. Um, What's the big festival in Edinburgh, the comedy festival? Oh, Edinburgh Fringe. Edinburgh Fringe. And I did that with Corky and the Juice Pigs. And uh, I met Boothby there. And, uh, again, he's just another guy that was a perfect fit to tour with us. And we we all get along famously. So, One of the times when I went to see you, um, he uh, I took my son. It was his first gig. And uh, not only was he absolutely in love with you guys, but uh, he thought um, Boothby's um, Hartlepool song, which sings about yeah. hanging a little monkey. Yeah. He, he was singing that for days afterwards. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's a great songwriter. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty deep song. That's the thing about his songs. They're, they're fun and funny, but uh, there's often some, some deeper meaning in them. And I think that that's the case with that one. You should ask him about it. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, I will. Um, but uh, the other thing which I want to get into, so at the time, you're just riding high on, on that album and you're recording the video to one week uh, when you got diagnosis with leukemia. leukemia. Yeah. Uh, how do you just, like, I can't imagine the input of all those things, of, of the success of the album, of uh, recording a video, and then, I mean, obviously there is no time when a diagnosis of leukemia is going to be easy, but on top of all that, it must have been just such a, a, a mess with your mind. I was trying to clean that up from the fly. Well, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was suddenly dealing with my mortality and uh, I was in Los Angeles and we shot a video for one week and there's real excitement that the record was coming out. I had to leave the video shoot. I was already starting chemo and basically packed a suitcase and checked into the hospital, not knowing if I would leave. Um, so it was very difficult. Yes. Yeah, and when you're in there, you record uh, your next album, which is, um, sorry, I've lost the note, uh, H-Wing, sorry, of course. Well, I wrote it in there, and then I, I recorded it when I was out and feeling well enough to record, yeah. And there's um, there's not many albums which I listen to where I get that kind of gamut of everything that someone's feeling. And it's just like, it's, it's an amazing work, really. If anyone hasn't checked it out, please do. Uh, just that feeling of kind of like despair in some moments and like, correct me if I'm wrong about any of this. And then in other moments, it seems like um, you're trying to find hope in it all. Well, those are the things you need to hang on to going through a, a health crisis like that hope and humor and positivity. But I think at the time I was thinking I've got to write, I've got to write all this down because I, I may forget it after or and I may want to so um and and mothball mint was very uh very innocent kind of record I was just having fun and trying to write songs but this I was kind of thrown into the deep end of uh a life and death experience and really felt I needed to express uh, express it and work through it. And um, it really deepened my ability, I think, to uh, to write. And and as if times weren't uh, strange enough for that period, uh, then Lou Reed reaches out to you when you're in hospital. Yeah, that was, uh, I was actually at home for a few days and very weak, like I could not even pick up a phone. And my goal every day at the time was to get up and down the stairs once. And then one day I got an email from Lou Reed, who's my hero, and it said, Kevin, it's Lou. I hear you're not doing too good. I hope you get better soon and get back to your music. And I was so happy and excited about that. That's the first day I had the strength to go down the stairs, out the door, and around the block once. And on that walk, I ran into my old friend, Chris Gartner from the Look People. And uh, we talked and he, I told him I'd been writing songs while in the hospital. And he asked if he could come over and hear them. So he came over to my house and uh, he said, why don't we go into a recording studio um, whenever you feel strong enough and we'll start recording these songs. 
Um, so we did. He, he introduced me to a fellow named Jeremy Darby, who uh, is an English man, and he has a great recording studio in Toronto here called Canterbury Sound. And he was an interesting guy. He used to uh, be on the road a lot with bands like U2 when they were just starting. He would ride the trains with them and help haul their gear. Uh, he was a sound man for Talking Heads. He, I think he was at Live Aid as a crew guy. And he was Lou Reed's sound man for a long time. And so there was another Lou Reed connection and, and he sent the record to Lou that we made called H-Wing. And Lou called me and said, Kevin, you've, you've done something. Um, you've made a beautiful record and you've done something important because you've gone somewhere where most people don't come back from and you've come back to report about it. Uh, and so again, that Lou and I started becoming friends at that point, and he would start coming to solo shows that I would play in the New York area, along with his band, Fernando Saunders and uh, Mike Rathke. And it, it sounds like you also uh, went back on the road fairly quickly, and, and it was a struggle with you. Like you collapsed on, on tour after that? Yeah, you know, they encouraged me um, to try to feel like myself, don't become a full-time patient, try to get back to your life, you know, that was an incentive. But what a life, you know, a touring <laughs> yeah. life is difficult for a fit person, you know, let alone a bad skinny guy um, uh, who's immunosub... Anyway, so, yeah, there were up, ups and downs, but, yeah, I had some near-death experiences on the road, and... Um, but in the end, I got better, and I, I thank the guys because they could have just sort of said, you know what, this is too much, and just get better, and they could have kind of moved on. But they they really said, Kevin, just do what you got to do to get better. Come back and play with us whenever you can. Uh, the door's open. We're, we're with you on this all the way. So I'm ever grateful um to those guys for that as people and as professionals um co-workers yeah and uh so you got to know lou and you ended up uh, being his band leader uh, in the later years of his life yes uh we kept in touch and at the toronto international film festival in 19 uh, i forget what year it was but they were premiering Lou's movie Berlin, the live performance that he did with Julian Schnabel. And Lou invited uh, Jeremy Darby and I. And afterwards, Lou invited us to the after show uh, get together. And I was surprised he came and sat right beside me. And his guitarist, Mike Rathke, I guess his nickname was The Rat. So he said, Kevin, the rat says you're a really good musician and that you and I should play together. So next time you come to New York, why don't we see if we can play together? And then he gave me his phone number and uh, he said it so fast. I, I had to say, could you repeat that? And then he got mad and like repeated it, but he was mad. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, then he left and, um, you know, I kind of 
jumped in the air on my way home and uh, couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, how do you sort of like um, get past that kind of fan part of you to like uh, uh, to, to work with them on a professional level and uh, and also to sort of feel like you can um, experiment with stuff with someone who is so established? I think it was important for me not to not to be a crazy fan with him. Yeah. You know, I, I know from my limited experience as someone in the public eye, if someone approaches me and they're very nervous or obviously um, maybe don't see me as a person, I'm just like a guy from a band. I'm not as inclined to engage, you know, but yeah. if I can kind of keep my cool and talk respectfully, um, with someone, it's more successful. And so that's sort of my attitude uh, that I took into working with Lou. And I was inside nervous as, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, do, do you think there's any side of uh, Lou that you saw from, from the inside working with him that you think other people don't see? What, what's kind of like the thing you think most people would be most surprised about him? I don't know. He has this reputation of of being a a grumpy, mean guy, but he's one of the sweetest people I've ever met, and one of the funniest people I've ever met, and one of the best friends I've ever had. And I don't mean in a in terms of closeness. I just mean if he was your friend, you knew it. You know, he he treated you with respect, and he he helped you, and he was faithful and yeah, it was so strange to be, be his friend because he was my hero all my life. And I'm so grateful for the, for that. But I think yeah. he, I think he liked how much I loved his work. You know, it, it made him, uh, made him feel comfortable with me. Okay. And um, uh, getting back to the bare naked ladies. Uh, Stephen Page has talked uh, uh, quite a bit about the later years when he was in the band uh, prior to him leaving. And he said it wasn't kind of uh, too much fun, it sounds like, but kind of uh, everyone was kind of working very professionally. How did that feel from the inside leading up to the time when Stephen left? Well, I don't want to speak for Stephen. That's something oh, no, just for yourself. talk about. But I will say that a huge part of our shows is sort of a feeling of camaraderie and fun and making songs up, making each other laugh. And that was becoming, it started feeling like it was forced. Hmm. And so it wasn't genuine and that's no fun. That's not healthy, you know? So I kind of see it. Uh, it's like a relationship that just something needed to change. And, you know, it's really sad that it did. It was, uh, you know, I know a lot of people uh, miss Steve's uh, presence in the band, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't going in a good direction. So something yeah. to give. I mean, there's some certainly a feeling uh, of difference to the album which followed uh, All In Good Time. And I, I think it, it sounded, there was just something in the music which just sounded like it was kind of a bit freer and it was kind of the right time to go in that direction. And, you know, hearing Steve's, uh, Stephen's, sorry, first album, 
uh, it sounds like it was kind of quite freeing for him as well. So it just sounded maybe like necessary. I think so. And I think there was a feeling in the band that, oh, there's, you know, it, it, it was, a, you know, a relief, a, a sad relief. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and uh, we had to reinvent ourselves a little. And as nerve wracking as that was, it was also exciting and invigorating. Yeah. And how, how did it feel going in for the uh, first album out after that? Because um, where, the way that uh, it was described by Ed is that it's like it felt like everyone had more space. He writes in the show notes. And I feel like you can hear that on the album. Did it feel like that for you? It did. Yeah. It, and uh, I certainly was able to bring more songs to the table. And whereas songs I brought in before, like Celebrity or Sound of Your Voice or Adrift or um, you know, uh, there's a few others, but S- Steve or Ed might sing them. I was, you know, having the opportunity to sing them now, and that was kind of cool. Yeah, did you feel um, comfortable doing that? Uh, you know, obviously you'd had your solo work, but um, doing that as part of Bare Naked Ladies, did that feel natural? Um, yeah, I've been singing all my life. You know, I sang in the choir for years, and as you said. I'm not like a front guy. And I think that part, um, you know, I couldn't really, I wasn't going to pretend to, to sort of be that type of person in the band, but I was grateful for the opportunity to sing my own songs. It it just feels like a a wonderful intimacy to your songs. I I think like where you say you you don't feel like you're a, um, a a showman, like you're a front man, but it's like, I, I think that, uh, you, you bring your own style to it. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's done with, uh, yeah, it's done with all the sincerity and uh, feeling I can muster, but I, I don't think I can dance like Mick Jagger. But like there's some of the songs which you bring in, which are like, uh, like you said, Sound of the Voice and um, uh, Don't Shuffle Me Back, which just sound like uh, they're from another era in a most wonderful way. I, I love those kind of tracks. And oh, it just feels like maybe that didn't have, like we said about space as much space before in the band sure yeah and yeah i'm a big fan of the area of like the drifters and uh doo-wop music and i think i i had that in common with lou he really loved that type of music too so and the thing i loved about the bare naked ladies from the get-go was the the singing and the harmonies and so i think in my songs i always try to accommodate that uh, element of the band as much as possible and um, yeah, I mentioned Don't Shuffle Me Back uh, before. When I heard that on the album you did with The Persuasions, I actually thought that was one of theirs. Like that's how kind of like uh, it fits into that kind of feel. How was it working with them? I mean, what legends? Oh yeah, it was a great experience. Um, that was a really lovely time making that record. We did it at Noble Street Studios here in Toronto. I'd met The Persuasions at the celebration for Lou's life. Um, he was a fan and he had taken them out on the road with him um, back in the seventies, I believe. So yeah, I have a coaster from a gig at the Hammersmith Apollo with Lou Reed and the persuasions. Someone gave it to me on our last tour over there in the UK. It's pretty cool. Um, So where was I? Sorry. (laughs) Working with the persuasions on uh, ladies and gentlemen. 
yeah. So upstairs at Noble Street, they had a table and we'd all eat dinner and lunch together. And they had so many great stories. And so it was a real learning experience to, to just hang with another band like that from sort of a different walk of life. And we did a few shows uh, together in the States. And, you know, obviously in the States right now, there's a lot of unrest and that was all just really starting to uh, elevate. And I was really proud that we'd done a record with the, with them just from the point of view of, hey, there, here's two groups from different backgrounds and we're making fun, beautiful music and going out and performing it together, just creating good energy. And uh, I'm really proud of that. I'm, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, they seem to really just uh, throw themselves into uh, whatever songs you gave them. And it just, uh, there was something kind of different they found in each one. Yeah, they obviously, they, they brought uh, an amazing amount of soul to those songs. And... Uh, Dave Revels was the fellow who kind of did the vocal arrangements and he would send me voice memos and say, I worked on this song and I get really excited and play it. And it was always like, Oh, that's so great. And he really capitalized on the, uh, again, the, the opportunities for harmonies and group singing. I just really love their little uh, ad libs, which they do on those classic records, which you seem to bring into there. Like at the beginning where you're like, Hey, look, it's the persuasions. Like you've just oh, noticed yeah. them. I, I love stuff like that. It's just uh, so much fun. So Was that I. kind of your idea to bring into some of that? Um, yeah, I did. I did that. But then uh, one of them said, one of them just went right along with it, you know? It was, yeah. It was, it was great. I was, we were working with masters, you know, and, uh, I love the bassist voice. Um, uh, what's his? I'm, I'm having a mind blank. I'm sorry, but uh, I remember he he asked if he could sing the third verse, which was uh, when I'm feeling blue, I pick up a shoe, pretend it's a telephone, and that I'm talking to you. Jimmy Hayes, that's his name. So I was just ecstatic that he wanted to sing that verse, and. Uh, that might be my favorite moment on the whole record. I know it sounds funny, but like a small thing going in, which just made me feel like, oh, we're in for something. It's like, yoga. mind if we jam with you? And, the, and just the deepest voice goes, please. And just like, just yeah. go straight into the song. You just, yeah. It just sets you up for like a great feeling, I think, on the album. Cool. Um, yeah, a, a random like uh, project which you did along the way. Uh, you guys worked on Celebrity Apprentice. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> where we met Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> How was that? Uh, you know, if I'd known what I know now, I, I don't know how I would have handled it. But uh, basically, we, we changed our schedule so we could do the show. They asked us to do the show. And we were – one of the contestants hired us to play their fundraising event. So we were at the building and getting ready to perform and Donald Trump walked in like he owned the building and he probably did. And I remember he tugged my, oh no, first the, the um, director introduced us to Donald Trump 
and said, this is the bare naked ladies. They changed their whole schedule so they could be here today. And he didn't say thank you. He just said, oh, well, this is going to be really good for you guys, isn't it? And uh, then he tugged my my shirt and said, come on, let's do this. Like he just wanted to just do it. So that's about it. That's that. And I didn't really speak to him again after that. I mean, did you get the feeling he just hired you because he heard the band name Bare Naked Ladies and just tittered to himself, go, yeah, we'll go with them. He was, yeah, probably very disappointed to meet us, I suppose. <laughs> we, we disappointed uh, many old perverts. <laughs> <laughs> and just one which happened to go on to be the, the president. That's all. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, um, 2013, uh, you did a duet like no other. I, I mentioned up top singing with the Spaceman, Chris Hatfield. Um, I, I don't think that get got mentioned enough of the time. They they played a lot on TV over here, uh, him singing from space, um, oh, uh, the David Bowie song. But a duet with someone literally in space, that, that's got to be a, a highlight to anyone's career, surely. You know, just another amazing, weird thing along the way that's uh... – Chris is such a nice guy, such a smart guy, and that was a cool experience. I just love that after the song, his guitar just floats away and his guitar pick, you know, he just kind of waves and his guitar pick goes floating off. And <laughs> it's like, it's so cool. How did that opportunity come about? Did, did he approach you? Did you guys get in touch? Or uh, He approached the band, yeah, and then and Ed and him wrote the song together. And did you get a lot of uh, chance to rehearse? It must be difficult with someone in space. We, I didn't rehearse with Chris at all. I just learned the song. And the next thing I knew, I was looking at him up on the screen and playing, you know. I mean, just the energy of it with with, uh, with both the bands and then you've got the kind of glee club there. Um, just how, how, how did that feel in the room? Uh, it was, it seemed like a big deal, you know. It was... Uh, it was done at the CBC. We were at the CBC building here in downtown Toronto, and they they have some wonderful studios in, in that building. So it was all very professional and serious, and uh, then it just happened, and we couldn't do anything but play it, and, you know, it went well. So I'm glad. Absolutely Otherwise, you know, we have a mad guy up in space pissed off at us, and who wants to? <laughs> I I don't know. I like I've only seen him in interviews and things, but I can't imagine that guy getting mad. He just he seems so chilled. <laughs> I wouldn't mess with him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he seems the most um, mellow person to uh, have um, become an astronaut. He's very, he's very mellow and very kind. He's always got time to talk with kids who are fascinated with by space and. Uh, he's he's an amazing individual. Yeah, um, and just a couple of years ago, you were uh, inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Uh, as someone who is so modest as yourself, uh, do you allow yourself to kind of like um, feel how kind of like uh, much of an achievement it is for yourself? Um, yeah, sure. I allow myself to to be proud of that. Yeah. Yeah, and and how was the ceremony, and uh, getting back on stage with uh, Steve uh, with the band? Um, you know, it was cool to uh, 
to perform with Steve again and feel that familiar feeling like, oh yeah, this is, I got my, got my arm back here. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was cool. It was fun. I, you know, obviously it's not something that would have, we could do for a long time, but for that one occasion, I think we all deserve to celebrate that moment and we all embraced that and uh, had the mutual respect to leave other things aside for that time. Yeah, uh, just, I don't know, just like having that uh, recognition. It's one thing to get recognition from your fans and from other people, but like it's literally your country recognizing what you've done. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite something. And uh, being there, we really felt uh, a lot of love from our peers. And it was a very special, special time. On the same show, I performed a tribute to my friend Gord Downey, with Sarah, who had passed away with Sarah Harmer. And um, yeah, so that was emotionally taxing as well. And for every mm -hmm. sound check and camera shoot that I did with the Bare Naked Ladies that day, I also had to go back and do it for the Gord Downey tribute. And at the end, and so on the one hand, you have the thing with the Bare Naked Ladies and it's very celebratory, but also emotional because Steve's there. And then the tribute to my friend Gord, which was very emotional because he's not there. And I was just done by the end of the day, just done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. That that would be a lot to take in. Yeah, worth a lot. And it was, um, I'm going to use one of Gord's terms. Uh, we did a show... The same day, uh, the Bare Naked, uh, I did a show, a set with Gord Downey. It was a fundraising event, and I did a set with Gord Downey, which was very serious. It was Songs from the Secret Path, which was a wonderful project. If you get a chance, check it out. Um, and then I went on stage with Bare Naked Ladies, and we did one week and million dollars. And then I went back to the dressing room I was sharing with Gord, who had been watching it on the on the television monitor, and he said, well, that was quite a gear shift, wasn't it? <laughs> so I would use the thing, it would apply to the Junos for me as well. It was a gear shift, but what a, what a, what a blessing to have both of those experiences in one night. Yeah. And uh, one thing you guys in the band have been working on uh, during this time of lockdown uh, to give us all some entertainment as well as raising some money for charity is the selfie cam jams, as I believe they should be pronounced. Jam. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, just the production on those alone is amazing. So you've all, it, it seems recorded independently, but there's like multiple takes. I, I've seen people like working in a fashion and working apart, but to do all those different takes and then bring it all together, how, how do you produce such a thing? We have a friend named Edward Pond, and he's been on the last few tours as a friend, but also he's a professional photographer and video director. And we're just really comfortable around him and he knows how we work. And when the COVID um, pandemic um, sort of grounded us, he suggested, why don't we do something like this? And one person records the song to a click track and the rest of us add our parts. And he, he puts them all together and edits the video and um, mixes them. So it's a it's a team effort 
And from the recording point of view, just where you are recording in isolation, do you have kind of a backing track you're playing to yourself or just are you just going for your part? Well, you know, you would have I would have Ed's track on my laptop. I'm listening to it on headphones and I've got my phone over here filming me playing my part. So you need you need two devices. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It's just, um, as I said, they've just come out spectacularly. I don't think I've seen any of the other things from other bands, which are just, just so well produced, which uh, sounds like a compliment to your friend there. He's great. But another thing is we've been playing together for 30 years. So we know all these songs really well. We know <laughs> our parts <laughs> and it's uh, as odd as it sounds, we're, we're, we're able to remain tight in this sort of weird new loose format. I think also your your kind of willingness to experiment as a band plays into this as well, because there's a lot of bands who've been playing for so many years who've recorded kind of, as I say, recorded in isolation, and but recorded together, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but they haven't done the multiple takes, the slow cam at, at different parts, different video effects and stuff. That seems very Bare Naked Ladies to do. Who's the, who's the, the late show host that's been doing versions of them as well? Um, just some amazing stuff. They did Yellow Submarine. They did uh, White Wedding with Billy Idol. Do you know who I'm talking about? It's not James Corden. Is it? I mean, I haven't heard any no, of these. No, not him. Uh, I'm having another. Uh, Jimmy that, Kimball? No. Jimmy Kimmel? Uh, Stephen Colbert? <laughs> I'm trying no, to think of all the late night hosts. I'm going to look it up. But uh, um, I'm sure there's if there's anyone out there, there's probably yeah. screaming at me like, "Yeah, it's this guy." But, uh, um, there, there's a theoretical non-existent prize for anyone who gets a first in the chat. So <laughs> please, please put up. <laughs> so, uh, but no, that that's uh, absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. So to get onto uh, your latest album, so it's Common Sense, which uh, you can look up all of Kev's music on kevinhearn.com uh, which uh-huh. is on the screen right now and uh, that's recorded as a soundtrack to a documentary I understand. Jimmy Fallon Ugh! Fallon, ah I was so close <laughs> with the other Jimmy <laughs> chat group I now don't have to make a prize which I'm not going to send you <laughs> <laughs> I get the prize okay right Kev, send me your, Kevin send me your address I will find something to send you it won't be worth anything but <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, so as I say, Common Sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's recorded as a soundtrack to, to a documentary, I understand. Well, they used a couple tracks in the documentary, There Are No Fake, but it's it's a standalone record, uh, piano-based, mostly instrumental, um, a bit different for me. Uh, yeah. Uh, was there a particular reason why you wanted to go down that kind of like uh, instrumental route? Yeah, at the time I wasn't able to sing or talk. So I thought I'm going to make a record that I can just play piano on. And that's what I did. <laughs> and you recorded it as a trio, uh, you and a couple other guys, I believe? Yeah, um, Hugh Marsh on violin and an electronic violin uh, and Chris Gartner from The Look People and Finn Buckle on bass. And we went up north to my cabin and recorded it. And it was, you know, based on piano melodies and chord structures that I'd written. But then we, we would sort of uh, improvise. We'd come up with a skeletal structure and improvise them. And um, 
take it to the next step. We'd, we'd uh, add things. And then I brought it back to the city and Gavin Brown added drums to some of the tracks. And uh, it's kind of a dreamy, dark, psychedelic record. I, I really like it. Yeah, it's it's a really um yeah I mean I I don't know how many times I can use this in one interview but uh, it really feels like something different again. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of music, man. You can just keep it's endless. You can keep learning, you can keep exploring. It's uh it's quite an amazing thing. Well, um what I usually do on these interviews to wrap things up, just a bit of fun, is to ask some advice uh, from my guests. So, as someone who's had a lot of um different challenges in your life and career and uh, you you always seem to like uh, from from what I kind of can, can glean it seems like you take these as something to appreciate and to kind of incorporate into your story what would you advise to all of us about kind of uh, appreciating these moments in life which might not seem like a gift at the time shall we say sure each moment uh and each challenge has a, a lesson within it and or it might have a great lyric in it, you know. It's uh, you might be experiencing something uh, that, if you can express it in a way that someone across the world uh, can hear it, and it will resonate with them, and it may help them provide them some joy. And uh, that's a, a cool way that music connects us all. Uh, that's a wonderful way of looking at it and uh, i thank you very much for your time tonight uh hopefully you've had a good time talking to us i enjoyed us there's who else is there but thank you oh, well it's me but all those wonderful people in the chat um oh, like uh, yeah i can thanks. actually bring one forward uh becky's just said how great it's been oh uh, i didn't see all these Oh, this was definitely cool. an hour, a fun hour really enjoyed all the stories especially enjoyed seeing oh, and hi, hearing Marie. you kevin Maurice at so many of our shows. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Linda, this is a lot of fun. I'm really sorry I haven't been able to bring up um, uh, more messages, but um, uh, I've been having such a good time talking to you. Sorry to be selfish, guys, but uh, thank you all for joining us, and uh, hopefully you've had a good night. Uh, Kev, if you can just hold on the line for just one minute. Uh, I'm just going to wrap this up, and um, uh, then I'll say goodbye to you uh, off mic. But uh, thank you very much for viewing. I've been Dr. Squee. With me has been Kevin Hearn. And uh, you've been listening to the and watching the Dr. Squee show. Uh, I'm Dr. Squee and that was my show. Good night.